Let us pray once more for the hearing of God's word. Father, now you come to speak to us through your word as you faithfully set men before us week after week to speak to us from your word and in your authority according to everything that is true. But we come to receive from you today. We come to be fed and strengthened by you today. We come to receive your mercy and to receive your instruction. So Lord, open our eyes that we might behold wonderful things in this word. Open our hearts that we might be transformed by this word. You alone are the God who saves. So Lord, bring salvation to us today. Lord, we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. So your Bible should already be open to the first chapter of Haggai. Just keep that open because that's where we're going to be. And we're going to be looking at a number of things in Haggai chapter 1. But before we do that, let me just give you some context for Haggai so we remember that we remember where we are. And so Haggai falls after the rampant disobedience of Israel. Israel has been in Jerusalem, Israel Israel has been called the people of God, Israel has disobeyed God and gone after idols, and God in his wrath has destroyed them and destroyed their city and sent them out into exile under the nation of Babylon. But God, who is a merciful and compassionate God who loves his people, grants them a return to Jerusalem. He changes the heart of a king, King Cyrus, who issues a decree that the people of Jerusalem can go back to it and build the temple and reestablish the worship of Yahweh. Now, as the people go back and they begin to rebuild the temple, they are opposed by people in the land. The people that are already have settled around Jerusalem and in Jerusalem are not happy that the Israelites are back and trying to reestablish their temple. And so they use force and they use bureaucratic red tape to try to tie up the building of the temple. The people of Israel are discouraged by this and they stop building. They stop building for about 14 years. And so God sends prophets, namely Haggai and Zechariah, to encourage the people to restart the work. And that's where we're at. We're reading the prophecies of Haggai and how God spoke to his people at this time through him. So if you have your Bible open to Haggai, please stand and let's read. I will read. Chapter 1, verses 12 to 15, and we're all standing to show our reverence for this word and our desire to hear it truly according to God's speaking. Haggai chapter 1, starting in verse 12. Then Zerubbabel, the son of Sheltiel, and Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, with all the remnant of the people, obeyed the voice of the Lord their God and the words of Haggai the prophet as the Lord their God had sent him, and the people feared the Lord. Then Haggai, the messenger of the Lord, spoke to the people with the Lord's message. I am with you, declares the Lord. And the Lord stirred up the spirit of Zerubbabel, the son of Sheltiel, governor of Judah, and the spirit of Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, and the spirit of all the remnant of the people. And they came and worked on the house of the Lord of hosts, their God, on the 24th day of the month, in the sixth month, 
in the second year of Darius the king. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. So what we're going to do as we take this Old Testament text is we are going to observe four major headings for our instruction. In the text, we're going to observe, one, God's discipline. Two, the people's obedience. Three, God's encouragement. And four, God's sovereign power. And as we consider these four major headings, we're going to look through the Old Testament text towards God's precious revelation of himself in Jesus Christ. As our dear pastor and brother says week after week, the point of the Bible is Jesus. And so if you take an Old Testament text and you don't look through it to Jesus, we miss the point. So we can derive instruction from what happened and what God says to his people then, and we always need to color it with what God has shown us through his revelation of Jesus Christ. So let's begin. The first topic is God's discipline. Now again, our primary focus is going to be on verses 12 through 15, where the people obey the Lord and turn from their sin. But what brings about verses 12 through 15 is verses 1 through 11, which our brother Michael read, which shows God's discipline. God's discipline brings about the obedience. So I want us first to observe how God executes his discipline. In verses 2 and verse 4, he gives a word of rebuke. He tells the people what they did wrong. This people says the time has not come to rebuild the house of the Lord. Is it time for you to dwell in your paneled houses while this house lies in ruins? He gives a word of rebuke. Then he executes the discipline and explains the reason for the discipline Verses 9 and 10, you looked for much, and behold, it came to little. When you brought it home, I blew it away. Why? Because of my house that lies in ruins. Make no mistake, this is why these things have come upon you, because you have not built my house. And then he commands the proper and expected behavior. Verse 8, go up to the hills and bring wood and build the house that I may take pleasure in it, and that I may be glorified. This discipline was for their good. His original command for them to come back and build the house was for their good. And what God is doing in this rebuke, in this discipline, is seeking to turn them away from their evil. And God being glorified is good because he is worthy of glory, and it's good for his people because that's what his people were made for, to glorify him. And if his people don't turn to obedience, then that will be their destruction. And so God lovingly levels discipline upon them. And the instruction that we should take from observing this is that we who are in a position to exercise discipline ought to exercise it the way that God does. We need to watch him do it. And we need to do so likewise. We are made to bear his image. We are made to display his glory in all that he is to the world. And we do this 
when we execute discipline in the proper way. So this primarily is going to apply to parents because all parents are meant to bring up their children in the discipline and admonition of the Lord's. Fathers first and foremost, and then mothers coming alongside. Parents need to discipline their children. We're a church. The church exercises discipline, so we need to pay attention to this word. If you're in a discipling relationship, you need to exercise a sort of discipline to those you're discipling. We need to do it the way that God does it. So what does he do? He gives a word of rebuke. We ought not to keep silent when those who we are in authority over are doing wrong. We need to speak up and to let them know that they are in sin. This is what God does. We need to explain the reason for the discipline. We, God is clear why he is inflicting pain upon his people. He lets them know. When you are disciplining your children or when we discipline someone in the church, we explain very clearly this is the sin and this is the unrepentance and this is why we are doing this painful thing to you so that you might turn and repent. And then God commands the proper and expected behavior. We don't just say, you did wrong, pow, pow, get out of here. We explain what God desires. We explain the heart that they should have. We explain the work that they should do and encourage them to it because that's what God does. And as we're exercising discipline, we ought to explain how this is for their good and for their glory. All right, son, I don't enjoy spanking you, right? But God is a God who punishes sinners. And if I don't exercise myself to push you in a way of obedience, then I'm going to leave you to disobedience and you're going to meet the judgment of God, which is much worse than my spanking. So I spank you now so that you can have joy later. I explain this to him. And then, of course, you explain the gospel. Right? This is discipline, son. This is not punishment. I'm not exacting retribution just because I'm mad at you. I'm trying to put you in the right path, just like God does. Well, God is compassionate and forgiving. And if we turn and repent, then he receives us with open arms. And he's going to put that sin way behind him and not consider it anymore. So that's what I'm going to do to you, son. After this spanking, we're going to pray. I'm going to hug you. I'm going to love you. And we're going to move on. If you're repentant, we're going to put this behind us. Explain the gospel in your discipline. And this whole process is meant to bring about repentance and obedience. So we should take instruction from Haggai 1, discipline your children, discipline those who are under your authority faithfully and consistently, and point them to Christ, lest they fall under God's judgment. All right, now we're going to move to verse 12. We've observed God's discipline. Now we're coming into the meat of our text today. We're going to observe the people's obedience. Verse 12, then Zerubbabel, the son of Sheltiel, and Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, with all the remnant of the people, obeyed the voice of the Lord their God and the words of Haggai the prophet, as the Lord their God had sent him, and the people feared the Lord. 
So we're introduced again to our main characters, Zerubbabel, son of Shealtiel. He's the governor of Judah. He's descended from the line of David, so he would rightly be the king if Israel had power, but they're under Babylon, so he just gets set as the governor of Judah, and he is a direct ancestor of the line of Jesus. So we need to keep our eyes on Zerubbabel as we move through Haggai. He is arguably the most important figure in here after the Lord God himself. And we have Joshua, who's in the line of the high priest, who also in a way prefigures Jesus in his priestly role. He's the son of Jehozadak, who was the high priest before, Jeho- before Jerusalem got destroyed. And so he is back now serving in that role among the people. And the point why their credentials are given is that these are the leaders of the people. The word of God comes to them. It came to them and brought them rebuke. Now it comes to them and it's turning the leaders into obedience. And also the whole remnant of the people or the rest of the people. Now, it's not saying just everybody else who is in Jerusalem besides Jehoshua and Zerubbabel, but it uses this word remnant because it calls to mind that this is not all of Israel who is now back in Jerusalem. They were all carried off into exile in Babylon, and God has graciously brought back a remnant not all of them, but a remnant of the people to come and reestablish his worship in Jerusalem. And so all of them, the leaders and the gracious remnant that God has brought back, turned and obeyed the Lord. Now, three particular observations under this category of the people's obedience. The first is that they obeyed. Let's just observe that they obeyed. These whole people heard the word of God and they turned in obedience according to God's discipline. Observe, secondly, what they obeyed. What did they obey? They obeyed the voice of the Lord. And how did they hear the voice of the Lord? Well, it was through the prophet. And we see, particularly in the Old Testament scripture, at rare times, God speaking audibly or God speaking to his people through dreams. But much of God's revelation came through men and sometimes women who were chosen by God to speak with authority on his behalf. And when the prophet spoke the word of God, the people were to listen because it was God's word. And indeed here, the people obeyed the words of this one God sent, Haggai. Now, who was Haggai? We have no clue who Haggai was. We learn nothing about him. He doesn't seem to be anyone of repute or anyone of note other than that he was a prophet of God. And so why did the people obey him? Because he was sent by God. His words were God's words. Observe number three, why they obeyed. We get it at the end of that verse. It says the people feared the Lord. The people feared the Lord. This is why they obeyed. We read that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. We read that a woman who fears the Lord is to be praised. What does it mean to fear the Lord? Very frequently you will hear Fearing the Lord defined as a reverent awe. You see God, you are in awe of him, you have a reverence toward him. I think that's good, but like in my mind, 
Those words don't really make much sense to me. Uh, there's not much in our culture that calls forth reverence. Like, I don't connect to that idea very well. But another definition that falls under that, that was helpful for me and I hope will be helpful for you, is to fear the Lord is a desire to avoid his displeasure and his discipline. To fear the Lord is a reverent awe with a desire to avoid his displeasure and his discipline. Let me give you an illustration. Whoever trembled at these words... I'm going to tell your mama. Whoever trembled at these words, just wait till your daddy gets home. Right? Fear. And that strikes fear in your heart because you know you did wrong. You know your authority is going to find out. And you know that there's going to be discipline that comes from that. And that strikes a fear in your heart. Now, this mom or this dad or this grandma, or whoever's going to do the discipline that you are fearful of, is not somebody that if she came around the corner, you'd go, ah! and like run away in this crazy Halloween axe murder fear. It's a fear of discipline. This mom, or this dad, or this grandma, or whoever is one that loves you. This is the same one that when you fall and scrape your knee, They're going to come and pick you up and clean that thing off and put a Band-Aid on and kiss your boo-boos. There's love there. But when you do wrong and they find out about it, there is reverent awe. There is fear. And that's what happens to the people in Israel. They heard and experienced the discipline of the Lord. They recognized their sin. And they said, we need to get our act together. God is speaking to us in discipline, and if we don't turn, worse things are going to happen to us. They feared the Lord, and that proper fear is manifested in obedience. And so I have three instructions that we take from this. The first is fear the Lord. Fear the Lord. In Isaiah, the Lord says, The one to whom he will look is one who is humble and contrite in spirit, and trembles at his word, trembles for fear of displeasing the creator and receiving his discipline. And so if you are unsaved, then your instruction is to obey the gospel for fear of judgment. The wages of sin is death. Whoever has not believed in the name of Jesus Christ is condemned already because they have rejected his word and rejected his revelation. You should rightly fear before the word of God. And that fear of judgment should drive you to repentance and obedience through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. If you are a Christian, then your instruction is to obey the Lord for fear of displeasing your father and receiving his discipline. In the reading that we did of Hebrews, this was written to believers. And it says, those who are without discipline are illegitimate children. A good father, when his children are doing wrong, comes upon them with discipline. Not to punish and exact retribution, but to turn them in the right way. But that discipline, for the moment, is painful rather than pleasant. And you don't want to experience that if you don't need to. 
So walk forward in obedience. Fear the Lord. Instruction number two, listen and obey the word of God when you read it. I already touched on this in the exhortation. There are no more prophets. Hebrews chapter 1 tells us that in many times, in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken by his son. And what we have is the God-breathed canon of scripture, which is God's word. All of which, which has been inspired by the Holy Spirit. All of which is the very word of Christ. And we must obey it. Of course, we have to read it and obey it with understanding. Every commandment is the, in the Old Testament is not for us. We don't have to be so nervous about what we do with baby goats and their mother's milk. We don't have to be so worried about the blue tassels on the fringes of our garment. Right? That's not our covenant. But it is all truth, and we are to derive wisdom and instruction and see the character and desire of our God revealed in it. Now, what is our covenant directly to us and for us is the New Testament. And all the commands that come to the saints in there are for us to be obeyed explicitly and fully. Whether it's from the mouth of Christ himself, right? People have their red letter Bibles, right? We like to see what Jesus says and obey that. But it's the whole thing. It's the whole thing through the apostles or through the other authors that Christ inspired to record his word. We need to pick up the Bible and look at it and read it and obey it as it is the word of God himself because it is. And instruction number three, listen and obey the word of God when it is spoken. Not going to belabor it. But when you hear a man speaking according to the scripture, when you hear anyone speaking according to the scripture, the things that they say are not based on their authority. It's based on God's authority. You need to hear it and receive it and obey it in that way. Next major heading, we're going to look at God's encouragement. And under God's encouragement, I have only one observation and one instruction. God's encouragement, verse 13. Then Haggai, the messenger of the Lord, spoke to the people with the Lord's message. I am with you, declares the Lord. Observe what the fearsome father does after he applies the discipline and his people repent. He gives them comfort and encouragement simply with these four words. I am. Am with you. When Almighty God, who made the heavens and the earth and rules over all things, says to you, I am with you, what more comfort and encouragement do you need? He says, I am not against you. I am with you. He doesn't say, I got my eye on you. He says, I am with you. If you recall, after another time of disobedience, after God gives the law and the people turn to idols and they make a golden calf and they're having a, a terrible, nasty party at the base of the mountain and God, in his anger, prepares himself to destroy them, he says to them, I will not go with you. And Moses intercedes for the people. He says, God, if you destroy this people, what are the nations going to say? So God relents of his destruction of Israel, and he says, I'm going to bring you into the land like I promised, but I am not 
going to go with you. You are stiff-necked and disobedient people. I want you to hear the words of Moses as he prays in response to that, just to hear the importance of God's presence. After Moses prays, the Lord says, my presence will go with you and I will give you rest. And Moses says, if your presence will not go with me, do not bring us up from here. For how shall it be known that I have found favor in your sight, I and your people? Is it not in your going with us so that we are distinct, I and your people, from every other people on the face of the earth? It is the presence of God with his people that marks them as such. Moses recognized that. He said, Lord, if you're going to bring us into the promised land and you're not going with us, no, 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 no. That's not going to work. That's not going to be good. Please, please, Lord. How's anybody going to know we're yours unless you are with us? There can be no comfort for God's people if he is not present with them. When God feels distant or God is distant or absent, there is no encouragement. This is a large theme in the Old Testament where God repeatedly comes to his people and comforts them with his presence. I am with you. He says to Joshua, go into the land. Have I not commanded you? Do not fear. I am with you. I will never leave you or forsake you. Similarly, through the prophet Isaiah, he says to the people, do not fear, for I will be with you. I will strengthen you and help you and uphold you with my righteous right hand. God's presence comforts his people. And so here is your instruction. Take comfort in coming to God. Take great comfort in coming to God. When God's people repent and pursue obedience, his promise stands. I am with you. Whoever comes to him, he will never cast out. And so take comfort when God promises to be with you. Under the new covenant, in the New Testament, God declares his presence again for the comfort of his people. He does this in many places, but what I, what I see is one of the most beautiful ones is in John 14, verses 15 to 18. He's talking to his disciples. He's about to go to the cross. Jesus is about to leave them. He says to them, if you love me, you will keep my commandments And I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever, even the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive, because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. Do not fear, for I am with you. For those who follow Christ, he promises the Holy Spirit. Then he himself says in verse 18, I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. The presence of Jesus Christ will be with his people for their comfort. And then in verse 23, Jesus answered, if anyone loves me, he will keep my word and my father will love him and we will come to him 
and make our home with him. Spirit, Son, Father, the triune God, the triune presence promised to his people who repent and follow after him. There are many things that may tempt a believer to despair. Responding to God's conviction of sin, you recognize that you're guilty. You may be tempted to despair. Struggling against temptation that clings so closely. I want to follow the Lord, but I keep recognizing this terrible inclination in my evil heart tempts you to despair. Experiencing God's discipline, tragedy has come upon you or hardship has come upon you because of your unrepentant sin and you feel like God is just crushing you to pieces. Feeling lonely like no one is with you. Feeling depression or just generally being in a challenging season of life. Believers can be tempted to despair. God doesn't love me. God is far from me. God is not helping me. But as God's people, in the midst of all of these terrible things, cling to faith and pursue faithfulness to him, his presence is promised. I will be with you always. I will never leave you or forsake you. Take comfort in these promises from the word of God. Follow him in faith. And this God, who promises to be with his people in all circumstances, controls all things. This is our last major point to look at God's sovereignty. God's sovereignty. Give you two observations here and three instructions. Verse 14, Haggai 1 14, and the Lord stirred up the spirit of Zerubbabel, the son of Sheltiel, governor of Judah, and the spirit of Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, and the spirit of all the remnant of the people, and they came and worked on the house of the Lord of hosts, their God. The people went in and did the work on the house of the Lord, the very thing that they had neglected to do for over a decade. Like, why the sudden change of heart? Observe, the Lord himself stirred up their hearts. God, almighty God, sovereign God, will accomplish everything that he pleases. He declares the end from the beginning and everything in between. The heart of a king is like a stream of water in his hands. He turns it wherever he wishes. The Lord stirred up their spirits to do the work. Now, what is his aim in doing this? Why does God, in his grace, stir up their hearts to obedience? Observe, number two, in verse eight. He says, go up to the hills and bring wood and build the house that I may take pleasure in it and that I may be glorified, says the Lord. 
the reason why sovereign God had mercy on this disobedient people and stirred up their spirits to turn to obedience and to build the temple is for his pleasure and to display his glory. Now, it had pleased God throughout the Old Testament to display his glory to his people in a number of ways. The heavens themselves declare the glory of God. In creation, he shows an aspect of his glory. As he walked with his people in the wilderness, he appeared to them as a pillar of cloud and a pillar of fire, mighty stretching up to the heavens, displaying his glory. He displayed his glory in acts of war, raining hailstones from heaven down on the enemies of God, sending an angel to slaughter 185,000 Assyrians in one night. He displayed his glory in various temporary manifestations, like when he came and he sat with Abraham by his tent and had a meal, or when Moses went up the mountain with the leaders of the people and sat and had a meal in the presence of God on Sinai. The giving of the law was a display of God's glory. The tabernacle itself that they carried through the wilderness was a display of God's glory. The height of the kingdom of Israel under Solomon, where all the wealth was coming into Israel, and Israel reigned and had repute, was reputed for their wisdom, showed God's glory. And that first temple that Solomon built, where after he dedicated it, and the Shekinah glory of God, brightness and glory came and dwelt in the temple. God was always revealing his glory. And because of his people's disobedience, that temple was destroyed and God's glory left. The rebuilding of this temple after the exile would display his people's return to obedience at the current time. But it also served a greater purpose. There was a further more glorious manifestation that had not yet been made. And here God is working towards it. We who have the new covenant know that nowhere is God's glory more completely revealed than in the person and the work of Jesus Christ. Hebrews 1 tells us he is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. This is the revelation that God is moving to, the final revelation of his glory. And Haggai chapter 1 just sits in the middle of that road as God is making his way to this great thing. There's a few things that on this path, the rebuilding of the temple would bring about. One, his people could resume offering those repeated sacrifices that followed the law, but could never purify from sin. There, there would again at that temple be a central location for the worship of God's people where they would all flock and come and where God could send the Messiah to reveal himself to them. It's a place where that same Messiah, Jesus, would come in with the wrath of God and symbolically drive out of that temple all of those who had taken his worship and turned it as an opportunity for selfish gain. 
This temple would be a place where God could stand among his people, look upon the temple, and proclaim himself the true temple. Destroy this temple in three days, I will raise it up. He will be the true center of worship for God's people. It's at this temple that the people are building in Haggai chapter 1 that when Jesus goes to the cross and gives his life for our sins, the veil that they had put up to separate the holy of holies from the rest of the temple would be ripped top to bottom for God to display that now through Jesus Christ's death, the way to him is open. The way to the Lord, into the Holy of Holies, into his presence is now open because Jesus Christ bore the sins of his people in his body on the tree. No temple, no veil ripping. How sweet of a picture is it for us? So God stirred up their spirits so that they would build this temple. And it's this temple That following Israel's rejection of Jesus Christ himself, this temple too would be torn down so that only the true eternal dwelling place of the Lord, the risen Christ, would stand and be sought for the worship of God. So this second temple that we're seeing rebuilt in Haggai is just a part of God's purpose as he's moving towards the full manifestation of his glory in Jesus Christ. And so he stirred up the hearts of his people, his naturally disobedient people, to do it. The Lord always accomplishes his purposes. He's sovereign. His will will not be thwarted, not even by your own disobedient nature. He cannot be stopped. And so this is instruction for believers Take heart, take heart, because God will sanctify you for his purposes. This is the assurance and hope that we have as new covenant believers. Israel, under the old covenant, they had the law, but they had no confidence that they would be able to keep it. In fact, it was impossible for them to keep it. But God's people, the church, will not fail in obedience to him, because he will stir up their hearts to work for him. That's the promise in Ezekiel 36, right? I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you, and I will make you careful to obey my commandments. Take heart, believer. God will sanctify you for his purposes. Second instruction, also for believers, align your work to God's purpose. As you look into the scripture and you see what God desires, you take your life and your desires and you submit them to his and you walk according to what he wants. I tell you a mystery. Though God is sovereign, he has given us a will. And we are free to exercise our will according to what we want. We do what we do because we want what we want. And scripture comes to us and tells us, work it out. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you. 
The word of God comes to believers to encourage them and push them on. It is the very word and speaking of God that stirs up the hearts of his people to go do it. So as we hear it, we have to set ourselves and discipline ourselves to walk in obedience. And as we set ourselves and discipline ourselves, it is very God himself doing his work for his purposes so that no man may boast. Instruction for unbelievers. Call upon the Lord. Call upon the Lord. The Lord Jesus says, unless one is born again, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. And what what does the brother say? How can a man be born again? Can he enter into his mother's womb and be born a second time? No. No, Nicodemus, that's not what I'm talking about. How can you be born again? You can't birth yourself. God has to do it. Jesus says, no one can come to me. No one can come to me unless the Father draws him. You can't make yourself a Christian. God's got to do it in you. But what the Lord says is, seek him and he will be found. Knock, and it will be open to you. Ask, and you shall receive. If you feel a conviction of sin, if you see God's righteous wrath against sin, if you understand that you will be condemned if you die without your sins forgiven, and you find yourself currently in a position of unbelief, call out to the Lord. Call out to the one who can change that. Just ask me. Just ask me, he says. Ask him to change your heart. Ask him to fill you with faith. Trust his word, and you shall receive it. The last verse, verse 15, is a time stamp. You'll notice in Haggai there's a number of these stamps, and they're generally just used to mark the end or the start of a new prophecy. So in verse 15, it says, On the 24th day of the month and the sixth month in the second year of Darius the king, that was when the people came and worked on the house of God. This was 23 days after the first prophecy came on the sixth month on the first day of the month. Why the delay? Were the people procrastinating? I think they were repenting and rallying and preparing, getting their materials together getting organized, and 22 days later, they did the work because their hearts were stirred. All glory be to God for it. And so may we work by the stirring of God as they did for the glory and the pleasure of our Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Lord, how we need you. How we need you to work in our hearts. I do not understand how it works that you are sovereign and that we must work. But I do understand, Lord, that we give all glory to you for the good works that you have prepared beforehand for those that you call out of darkness and into light. Grant in your mercy salvation to this people before me. Grant in your mercy obedience to all of us, an open ear to hear your word, an open heart to be transformed by it. 
Thank you, Father, for speaking to us through Jesus Christ. May his name be magnified in all things. Amen.